Welcome to Everyday Therapist. I'm Rich from the UK. And I'm Cody from the United States. Before we jump in, we just want to say that this podcast does not constitute therapeutic advice. Just real quick before we get started, I just want to let you know that this is part two of our interview with Braxton Dutson. The interview sounds like it starts right in the middle of a conversation, and well, that's because it does. If you feel like you're missing anything, uh, go ahead and just jump back to uh, the last episode that we released. It's part one of this interview, and again, this is this is part two. Thanks everybody for listening, and enjoy the interview. into this but I was curious so you you had these different conversations age-appropriate conversations going up and up and then for me once it hit to sort of I don't know 13 14 years old for me there's a a kind of a moral question to it as well which you're not going to discuss with younger children and then I suppose I mean if we're talking about um sexual health from, from from an adult point of view i guess my first question is is pornography a good thing or oh not? that's a really great question and i love that because it creates a binary and so many people want the binary when it comes to sex and my biggest disappointment to everybody is well i'm going to disappoint them and it depends <laughs> because what uh, what you're going to see in the pornography research is you're going to have camps where they're saying this is absolutely destroying brains and the other side that says it's the exact same as petting a puppy um yes engaging in drugs also having sex connecting anything that provides a dopamine experience we're still learning a lot about dopamine so when you hear this is like injecting heroin into your eyes because the brain experiences it this way yes and The other side of it often shows up as when you're petting a puppy, when you're experiencing your child doing something for the first time, like taking their first steps, or when you're eating a pizza or a food that you really enjoy, your brain lights up very similarly to saying, I really enjoy this stimulation. We should do this more, rewarding the brain so we do more of it. So you're going to have two camps. One side is the porn addiction side, and the other side is the out of control sexual behavior or different methods of doing that. So is porn good comes down to depends on your belief system, your action within it, but oftentimes it comes down to your agreement with partners and yourself. So what we do see is that the most distress in relationships comes when there isn't an agreement around sexual or around uh, pornographic, the, the sexual imagery. So you have a partner that is, that is uh, utilizing sexual imagery And the other partner doesn't know about it or has said, I don't want this in our relationship and I don't want you engaging in it. And then it comes out later and they're like, oh my gosh, you didn't follow our agreement. That creates a ton of distress. The other one is when internally a person says, I don't want to view sexual imagery, but continues to use that or feels the discomfort and distress about being pulled towards it. That creates a lot of distress. We also see that Sexual imagery, sexual videos can enhance sexual connection with partners when it's consensual between the two of them or when one or the other or both are using it on their own and they have a, um, an agreement on how or what that's used for. Um, usually it doesn't create very much distress and sometimes it can actually enhance sexual um, experiences as long as they also understand that it is not, that it's an entertainment, not necessarily the, the way they should be having sex. Let, let, I, let me jump in right here because it's something that I find fascinating and, and I don't think most people outside of the mental health field know this, but there is not a current diagnosis for pornography addiction in the DSM, our yes. diagnostic manual that we use here in the U.S., Rich. Um, it, there's, no, there's no current addiction for, for pornography, mm-hmm. um, although I, I know that it's being studied. So Braxton, in your um opinion when does it cross over obviously knowing that there's not a a diagnosis specifically but when does it cross over from a a habit a detrimental habit to an addiction great question so going off on the the dsm a couple little updates on that so dsm doesn't have one in fact dsm doesn't have addiction in there (laughs) 
it's it's kind of funny. We use this word, this pop culture addiction, when ultimately yeah. what you're going to find is dependency and abuse. So even with drugs, you're not. We've diagnosed you with drug addiction. No, you don't get a diagnosis for drug addiction. You get diagnosed with drug tolerance or drug abuse. So that could be caffeine, that could be gambling, that could be um, heroin, it could be alcohol. All of those things are placed in there, but sexual imagery, pornography is not. In the ICD-11, um, so we don't typically use that mental health field or that that uh, in the mental health, but in ICD-11, what's come out has been the compulsive sexual behavior disorder. So that's about the closest that you might get a diagnosis for that, where there's a compulsion behind the sexual behavior, which again starts to lead us towards more questions, which is what I like around that, which is what other things could be going on mentally that create a compulsion? Is it OCD? other situations that way. So just a little update on that, that there's, that's about the closest you might get diagnosed to, but also understand that when we're looking at distress in those other diagnoses, we're looking for tolerance. We're looking for distress in the family. We're looking for um, what happens if you come off of it where, you know, you could have withdrawal symptoms and we don't typically get that with uh, sexual behavior and or pornography. Now, some people say like, well, I get kind of irritable. I'm like, okay, you might get irritable, but that could also be a part of you have lost a coping mechanism to try and deal with the stress or the internal thoughts that are going on. So when we're looking at internally identifying like what, what typically will show up when someone comes in and says, I'm, I'm addicted to pornography. I am not trying to put down the distress. The distress is absolutely real. They're not coming in with this made up feeling. And so I don't mean to say all this information, say it's not real what you're experiencing. What you're really experiencing is is distressing. It's painful. So I try and focus on what the distress is about. Now, identifying a lot of people feel like they can't stop. That they And the hard part is identifying what does that mean. I've worked with individuals that have said, I'm addicted to porn. And they will look at um, still images of a, a woman in lingerie once every six months. And that is their addiction to pornography. And then I've worked with people that will view um, some of these more mainstream um, pornography sites where there's depictions of actual sexual acts. And they'll view that once a day, masturbate for 10 minutes. And they're like, yeah, no, I'm good with that. That's, that's not distressing. I'm dealing with anxiety. Help me work on this other stuff. <laughs> and so the, the spectrum of what is distressing to what's not is huge for individuals. So coming back to your question, Cody, um, and I, I'm, I'm hoping I'm kind of setting up the question. Can you remind me exactly what, uh, what question was that you had? Yeah, it mostly just helping to define for, for anybody that's listening, maybe a if they feel like they're addicted versus if they just feel like it's a detrimental well, habit. Can I they jump can't in break. there and, and, and say that because I've listened to a lot of stuff and I've listened to a fair amount of stuff about addiction. Um, last week I was listening to something about food addiction and mm-hmm. it's actually really difficult to define. So I, I guess you know, what I would view to be addiction, what you would, what Braxton would, I think it's, uh, it's extremely difficult. But I mean, the sense that I get from it is if it's causing a problem in your life, you don't want to do it anymore. And, you know, it's having a detrimental impact on you. And you'd rather not do it, then I would say you're probably addicted for want of a better word. <laughs> yeah. So being able to engage in that, the the wording I think is important because people use the word addiction and they stop asking questions after the addiction. Um, I'd say mental health therapists do this too, and which which is where I think the biggest problem is. So I come in, see you guys as a client, and I say, Cody, I'm addicted to porn. Now, Cody has the option to be able to start saying, okay, tell me what distress you're feeling. What's the behavior you're doing? Tell me when, where, how often, how much. We go into an assessment. Unfortunately, a lot of individuals go, oh, you're addicted to porn. I know what that means. Let's start treating that. Mm-hmm. And just as much as a mental health therapist where someone comes in and says, hey, I've got OCD. Oftentimes, and I would inc- if you're doing this as a mental health therapist, stop. But if you someone <laughs> comes in and says, I'm OCD, and you're like, sweet, well, let's get you in the ERP program, and we'll get you into an outpatient. That's what you need. Let's go. Don't do that. You're the mental health professional. Do an assessment. Don't let addiction stop your assessment skills. If your person says, I'm addicted, 
oftentimes it means I'm doing something that I feel I don't have control over. I feel out of control of my behavior. It's distressing to me or my partner, and I'd like that to change. Great. Let's explore what we want to have change. How often is this behavior happening? Is there some education that needs to be had? Because oftentimes people identify if I masturbate, then I'm addicted to sex. That's misinformation. They need to know that masturbation is quite a natural part, just as much as someone with a food addiction may come in and be like, I'm addicted to food. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean you're going through three or four loaves of bread because you just feel like there's a nervousness behind not having food? What's going on? So being able to identify what is you need to eat and as sexual beings, we engage in sexual experiences for the majority of people. What is a part of what you want and is in your value system and what you want to experience versus what feels excess and above. So that's inflicted by or affected by society. It's affected by religion. It's affected by parental experiences. It's affected by what your friends and others have said and what you're experiencing in pop culture is what is okay and what's not, which leads us back to what is normal. So how, how often is it okay to be able to look at pornography? What do we define as pornographic? Again, there's a spectrum of what people identify as pornographic. Um, Can I just jump I in and say, I, yeah. I mean, do you, th- do you think part of the distress for people seeking help from you is the fact that they can't have these conversations? So, for example, if we talk, if we change and talk about alcohol, you know, me and Cody sometimes talk about alcohol and I say, oh, you know, I've had a couple of drinks or over Christmas I might have drank a bit too much, but now I'm going to kick it because it's not going to, it's not doing me any good. And, you know, mm-hmm. I'll make a joke about having a glass of wine, you know, all sorts of things. It's, it's so part of the conversation. But actually mm-hmm. what I'm doing in some sense is by conversing with Cody um, about, among other things, what I've had to drink it's out there and it's something that I do have to manage like everybody else has to manage Mm -hmm. it if I couldn't have Mm -hmm. that conversation and I was secretive about it I should imagine that might cause me some distress and um, is that a similar thing yeah very much so it's a shameful thing I don't know many people that are typically talking to their friends about their masturbatory sexual behaviors (laughs) not really this is a new video i'm going to send you send you this this new pornographic video that just came out on pornhub you're going to love it like that <laughs> doesn't typically happen so i'd say the distress that i typically see are people coming in distressed because they either anticipate pain if i don't kick this my future partner won't want to be with me and this is bad and evil or they're coming in saying my current partner is saying this behavior is not okay and I'm afraid of losing my relationship or there's something on a religious spectrum of God doesn't want me to do this. I need to stop this. This isn't okay. How do I stop this in those situations? And again, I don't think that anyone needs to view sexual videos. Like you don't, you don't have to. And so what I will work with them on is trying to support them in separation from stimulation and masturbation. So oftentimes Most people are viewing sexual images or videos while masturbating or for the intent of sexual gratification to orgasm or to a certain type of uh, pleasure. The problem is they usually get stuck together. And so people say, I want to stop masturbating and pornography at the same time. So they're asking for two coping mechanisms to be gone completely. One of them being quite a natural response to being human. So try and split that off and go, okay, so what are we going to do instead of, and we try and work with what their value system is. I work with them on their sexual health plan. What will you do? What won't you do? And what are you ambivalent about? How come, what's in the middle here? And so I work with them in their feelings, their experiences, and especially how they choose what they choose. So whether someone is going to a massage parlor for happy endings, or they're going meeting up with prostitutes, or they're viewing pornography or masturbating, being able to help them understand like where and how much control do you feel over this? And oftentimes they're saying, I have zero control. We try and broaden that ability to see when they make decisions, their choice, their choice points so that they can identify instead of, Oh, I had this thought and I started doing this and I got online and then I drop into out of control. We start to see like, well, you still have to click on the videos. You still need to, um, 
get yourself into a place where you can masturbate, where you can be in a private spot? How are you doing these things and how can you address and make different choices? That is easier said than done, but that's a part of the process. What other options do we have? How often do you find yourself getting into this? Is this an anxious response? Is this when you're feeling depressed and sad, you want to feel something different? Is there a compulsive response to it that this looks more OCD? Does this have other parts? We start to look at the mental health spectrum of what is being used here versus the symptom being the actual diagnosis. I often see this as a symptom of how we can address something more and that they can choose what they want within their sexual health plan, that they can create it themselves. Do you know, I'm really putting you on the spot here, So, but do you know much about the uh, neuroscience behind uh, viewing pornography? I usually refer people over to... Um, the studies with, um, oh my heaven, she's in California. What is her name? Nikki Prouse. Um, I don't okay. pretend to know that I could explain all of the ups and downs of the dopamine and the serotonin and all the other things that happen in the neuroscience behind it because I just don't have the training behind I suppose, that. I mean, my, my question kind of came from the fact that as I was listening to you talking about the struggle that, that some men have, I think you were talking about in particular, um, I was thinking in relation to sort of drug taking behavior and obviously I don't know any neuroscience, but if you, if you take some cocaine, it lights up a particular part of your brain, you know, I guess mm -hmm. it's a dope dopamine receptors, you know, sure. on fire. Um, and I believe it's the same dopaminergic system, I think you call it, which is the same mm -hmm. part of the brain that lights up when you view pornography. So, and, and I was starting to wonder about how many people, when you talk to them and do some therapy with them, how often is there more of a background problem um, as opposed to it, it is simply just pornography? Oftentimes there's a lot. When we say background problem, my assumption of that is that there's mental health, stress, distress in the family, something like that that's going on in the background. Yeah, yeah. The majority yeah. of the time. Mm -hmm. The majority of the time I, I find that there's... Where see, yeah, where you're C of coping. I think that's maybe where you were touching base on that is that's one of the things okay. is coping okay. from any yeah. background yeah. stuff. Absolutely. And then the, the separation that I've seen when it comes to the, the research behind the neural, the, the neural responses is one, we're still trying to understand just how dopamine affects the body. We just know that it's a pleasure and that it lights up certain areas of the brain that for mm -hmm. the rewards. So we're still learning more on that from my understanding of the research. The second one is, is coming back to the, um, the dependence side of it is that if you take cocaine and you continue to hit, take cocaine, you may feel you need more and people seeing sexual imagery be like, well, sometimes I feel like I need more. I'll talk about that in just a second. But then if we take the cocaine away, because you've in, you've instilled something that is a foreign substance that either heightens more serotonin or dopamine. It doesn't just light it up. It'll force more dopamine or it'll slow something else or it'll do these other things to affect the brain. Pornography doesn't, it, we are not actually sending a chemical into your brain. We are identifying what your fantasy is and your body goes, I like that. Let's do more of that. Let's experience more of that. So one is a foreign substance. Another one is what do you find yourself? People will view images of things that they find sexually attractive or sexually relevant for their own experience from fantasy all the way to, interestingly enough, humans like to watch other humans engage in sexual acts. That's just what we've seen. So going back to, well, Braxton, I, I feel like I have to view more and more and more. The videos aren't the same. <clears throat> I often find this. I mean, why do you think we keep coming out with videos? Have you guys been able to keep up on all the videos that Hollywood keeps bringing out? I can't keep up with them. What, what videos are you referring to? Any videos. There's movies coming out like, what, three a week? I don't know how anyone, one, affords oh. to go to all the movies that could come out. <laughs> and two... Like that, that, that's just, it's a load of time. They're like two or three hours, uh, you know, a video now. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think part of what you're, what you're getting at here is like, we're always, um, onto the next it's instantly, it's, it's waiting for that next hit, waiting for that next thing. A hundred percent. We don't, we view that entertainment as like, Oh, have you seen the other one? Oh, have you seen this new rom-com? Have you seen this new horror film? Have you seen this? There's more and more and more 
if we it really were humans that just enjoyed the same thing, I would just stick with Tommy Boy, the movie, and I just watched that over and over and over again. It's one of my favorites. But even I get I get tired of that one. I don't know what Tommy Boy is. I'm assuming it's not oh. a pornographic video. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's an no. American classic, I'd say, like right, maybe okay. Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> um, but those, but videos like that, we are humans that are wired to continually consume, to look for more, to we love novelty, which we come back to uh, monogamous relationships, interestingly enough, is how often do people buy magazines or find, a, you know, look for how to spice things up in your relationship. People want novelty while they also want safety in their relationship. Safety does not breed novelty. Safety brings safety. Novelty, there's a sense of, in, of not having some safety within there just in of itself because it's new, it's vulnerable, or it's different, or there's some form of new stimulation and exploration. Safety means you essentially know what's happening. So we kind of find ourselves in a conundrum in our relationships for couples in this regard. But I also see that as that's kind of the pitch that people put in saying, I've I've developed a tolerance towards pornography is the same videos or the same images don't do it for me. I keep looking for more and different ones and ones that, that feel like I'm lighting up. And so then I start searching for it and I feel out of control in doing that, which again, the distress is real. However, there's another part of that that goes yeah, if we were to take that away, you might feel like you've lost a coping skill. And if you find yourself searching for it incessantly and you're taking hours and hours of doing this, you that that is a symptom of something bigger that could be OCD, it could be anxiety, it could be avoidance. There's a couple of things in this background that are running that are important to look at. While we're talking about this, um, this uh, a coping and... Um, just trying to get dopamine hits and, and all of these things is one of the things that I work on with, with clients that come in to see me who are struggling with pornography addiction or anything is, is trying to get to those under rooted issues that you were asking about rich and not just, it's not just behavior modification. Like our goal is not necessarily just to get them to stop looking at pornography mm-hmm. all by itself. It's let's get at the underlying issue because what I, what I believe happens is if maybe we can have some behavior modification and they stop looking at pornography, but they still have not addressed those underlying things, which means now they're going to go cope with gambling or shopping or some other, some other pattern of behavior that is ultimately going to cause just as much distress. um, And it's just replacing one, one thing for the other. Yeah. I'd like to bring us little, tell you a little story here now about my smoking addiction that I had when I was younger. And I tried many times to give up and I got, I kind of got distressed about my smoking habit in the end because I didn't want to smoke and I used to smoke quite a lot. And as I, even as I was actually smoking, I would be craving another cigarette. So it got to the point where it had just got ridiculous and it didn't satisfy me. It was horrible mm. and I wanted to stop. Tried several times, failed. And then I, I read a book which was called How to Stop Smoking and Stay Stopped for Good. And the idea behind this um, method of giving up was you would give yourself a choice so for the first 12 months, I actually used to carry a packet of cigarettes around with me. And every time I wanted to smoke, I would get out the cigarettes and go through this whole process of saying, I have the right to smoke, but I also have the right not to smoke. And for now, I could choose to sit with some discomfort and not smoke. And if I want to, perhaps I could smoke later on kind of thing. So I'd go through this whole process and I really did engage with it fully and have like, a minute sat there with, and I'd even get out my cigarette lighter. I'd take the cigarette out of the packet and I would go, actually right now I'm going to choose not to smoke, put the cigarette away, whatever. And I gave up. So, so ha, (laughs) that was a, it was a, it was a really such a helpful book and, and everything else about denying it and willpower and all that had completely failed for me before. I love the way that you're talking about that, Rich. I would say that that depicts exactly the work that I try and do with people that feel out of control in their sexual behavior is seeing the choice, knowing that you have choices versus going to a, hey, you need to get rid of everything that reminds you of smoking. We need you to get you to do this and that. And then 
make sure people don't have, you don't have access to money. So you can't buy any more cigarettes. Do that. A lot of times people jump into these all or nothing things that are not sustainable. What you just did was so sustainable. Also risky and scary, right? You don't want to smoke, but you're sitting Mm -hmm. here staring at a pack of cigarettes going, I got my lighter and I could smoke right now. I have the right to smoke. You're processing what you can do, what you want to do, and what you're ambivalent about. Maybe I want to. Well, this isn't something I want to, but I really like that feeling. But I've got, there's all these reasons why you're getting involved in that. And then you're making a choice. And then that choice, that doesn't mean you may not smoke later. Yeah. It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that. But you get to start identifying why you want to smoke, if you want to smoke, and when. And the choice becomes even greater as time goes on to the point that you get to say, like, I, you still have the choice. You could go smoke right now if you wanted to. And ultimately, that's the same thing or mm-hmm. very similar when it comes to a behavior around acting out in a sexual way that you're not okay with or uh, viewing sexual imagery. That It is not going away. It's been around since the early ages. It's one of the first things that makes – any type of movement um, interesting from making pornographic pots back when uh, when when we were in the you know Egyptian ages and things like that all the way to the internet took off so fast primarily because there was access to sexual images and, and connection in that regard so being able to find yourself in choice with what you want to do how you're going to do it and what other options you have creates so much power, especially when you see all the different choice points. You just pointed out at least five for smoking. You had to take it out of your pocket. You had to open it up, pull out a lighter, pull out a cigarette, look at it, decide. All of those are choice points in order to get to smoking. You have to yeah. light it. You have to continue smoking. You could start a, a cigarette and halfway through cut it off and stop. And that would still look like progress mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. long run. I just want to bring in as well, just for full disclosure, that I um, I have smoked since. <laughs> so the point being is, uh, you know, even if you get get on track and and do all this thing, and I would say what led me to smoke again. I mean, I, I'm not a smoker anymore, but is drinking alcohol. So mm-hmm. so again, it's knowing certain triggers that are going to bring about that behavior. You know, it was back in the sure. days when you could smoke in pubs over here and, and all that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I'm not. I haven't got a clean sheet, but still that choice thing. I think having the choice is the important thing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's it's a huge part. It's also one of the harder parts here because if you move to, say, more of a 12-step or addiction program, <clears throat> oftentimes it's an all or nothing. You work through the steps. And some people find that really supportive. I'm not going to stand here and say, that's wrong, that you shouldn't do that. You should only do it. Find what's important and helpful for you. Oftentimes addiction programs can lead to shame. Stay away from shame. But if it works for you and it's something that helps you, do what helps you and helps take that distress away. Know that there's also other options too beyond addiction and 12-step programs to address what feels out of control for you um, as you work through some of these things. And that what you may feel is not normal may be someone's normal and that there's a big plethora of how people express it. It just becomes more distressing and difficult when it comes to we're sexual humans and it's hard to identify what is too much sex, what's not when you can't just say like, Oh, I'm clean from sex. Like, and you have a relationship and that's a healthy part of your relationship. It's really difficult to kind of manage those. But when you've got some of these out, um, outlying things like pornography or solo sex, that's where we start getting into some of those values and Mm -hmm. what you want to experience there, but give yourself some, some grace. One of the things that I uh, that you're describing, Braxton, that I think is a little bit different between um, working through substance use and working through pornography use is so much of the work that's done with substances is abstinence. And you can kind of define what that looks like, right? Like, Rich, yeah. you just mentioned, like, I have smoked sense. Or if, if you have a, a problem with drinking that I have had a drink or, and you kind of have like a sobriety date that everybody, um, you know, AA passes out coins and, and everything like that. And my experience with, uh, clients with pornography is we're not really shooting for a sobriety date because sex is so involved in, in normal life with spouse, with, I mean, even again, it's so the description is so broad. You could see a commercial and are you going to set your sobriety date back or, or, or whatever. And so it's, 
it's more about a um, a relationship to to what you're seeing and a healthy relate behaviors around that relationship to what you're seeing sexually versus a, a cut off and, and I'm done date. And I, I think that's one one way that I've had to work with clients of, of let's redefine what this looks like for you because it's not similar to coming off drugs in that sense. Yes. I, I like identifying it as you're going to feel turned on <clears throat> and it's natural for you to, for your body. It, your body is supposed to find sexually relevant things. Even right now with all three of us sitting here looking at each other, our bodies are tuning into, Hey, we're talking about sex. Is this sexually relevant? Do we engage in sex now? Do we not? Uh, w- a part of our body is engaging in what is sexually relevant. <clears throat> so I like the way that you talk about that, Cody, which is, you may say, all right, well, porn, porn's easy. We're just not going to look at porn. The hard part is then what, under what circumstance, I, I defined pornography a little earlier with the titillation, the intent <clears throat> for sexual gratification and arousal. You can get on Instagram and find that. And I find a lot of the clients that I'm working with find themselves distressed because while they're not viewing maybe um, something that's more, what would you quote, quote unquote, hardcore porn, <clears throat> But now they've moved to Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition or seeing Victoria's Secret models. They're like, well, but that's that's sexually relevant to me and that turned me on. So now I'm not sober anymore. Or yeah. if I or find going it, to a beach or a pool or something <clears throat> with your kids, you know, during the summer. Yeah. Or go to a shoot over in, in Europe. It's so much different than America, too, where you've got individual like being topless is not necessarily in some areas is not. Is, is quite common culturally. So if you go to Europe and go to a beach where people are topless, are you now like just surrounded by pornography? And what is titillating to you? It also is, we're, we're also in here talking and assuming that breasts, genitals are the pornographic thing. Some people really enjoy feet, enjoy shoulders, enjoy certain aspects of face, facial experiences. What titillates you and turns you on is going to be different in pornography or sexually relevant to you. <clears throat> And so do we have to take that out? That's where we start to become problematic within there. And if it's if it's in your value system to say, like, I just don't want to see people that are naked, we need to find this middle and gray area where it's like, hey, that turns me on. And how am I going to redirect my what turns me on to where I find it appropriate, maybe with a partner or with masturbatory practices that I feel okay with? That that's where I start to work with people to help them understand, like, what is your sexual health plan and what you're going to do when you feel turned on and so that you don't have to judge yourself for being human within that. Yeah. In, in the interest of time, I'm going to push us forward just, just a little bit. Um, if, if you're okay with that. Yeah. I'm, I want to talk a little bit about potential, um, problems and sexual dysfunctions that maybe can come from long-term viewing of pornography or even just genetically. Um, I know that that's something that, that you work with a, a fair amount. And um, you had mentioned to me before we got on here, maybe three primary sexual dysfunctions. And can we just spend a few minutes on those and we kind of sh- share your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to uh, erectile issues, um, things along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the things that, uh, that come up for me that people are most worried about, I view sexual imagery, and now I've, I've tuned myself into only being turned on by pornography, which on the out, outside, it looks like this. There's really two important things that I educate everybody on when they come in and say, well, I had a hard time getting an erection. Um, I am nervous about talking about my partner or trying to engage sexually with them, or I lost my erection with them. So obviously pornography broke my erection or I'm no longer turned on by my partner. I really screwed up. The hard part about this is you need to identify situational experiences. When you are with a partner person or multiple people, that is different than when you're in a solo sex experience. So what I mean by that is, There are things in solo sex you can experience that you can't experience in a partnered experience. And there are things in partner experience that you can't solo. What I mean by that is that if you are saying, oh, I'm viewing a stimulative experience. So I'm using a vibrator. I am viewing sexual imagery. I'm using restrictor things. I'm just masturbating with my hand. All of those things are different than what you would experience with a partnered experience. 
oftentimes when we're when someone comes in and says, "Hey, I've been viewing sexual imagery, and now this area over here is difficult," it is not uncommon for us to experience almost no anxiety when we're experiencing or stress or performance when we are on our own. You get to touch yourself, engage with yourself, view, experience, prolong, do whatever you want. You choose when to orgasm on, in a solo experience. So there's oftentimes little to know. And then if you're viewing sexual imagery, the videos you're watching, people, the whole point is for this or the images you're looking at are for people to feel turned on. And so there's this, you get to see what you want to see. Now in a partnership experience, well, now we're experiencing all sorts of anxious responses. You're getting naked. Okay, so we could spend time on going, Cody, what parts of your body are you most uh, insecure about? I could talk about my insecurities in my body. We could talk about Rich's insecurities in his body. Now all of a sudden you're naked, you can't hide those, and your brain is focusing on, oh my gosh, I hope they don't see my stomach. I hope they don't see my ankles. I hope, but what about this? Then you engage with a partner, their wants and desires. How do you express your wants and desires? What is your interaction between each other? What if you want something, but you could possibly get rejected? Notice how none of that is over here in solo sex. There's minimal feelings and fears of rejection. You don't have to over here. We've been told societally men are supposed to have a certain length of penis and girth. You're supposed to last so long. You're supposed to please your partner, but not really ask about that. And then if you bring in sexual imagery, the biggest issue that it brings up is that maybe you're supposed to know exactly what they need and they're supposed to respond a certain way. So there is a way you're supposed to act sexually. That's tons of pressure, tons of pressure. So one of my first goals is to help people recognize when you're partnered with a person, there is a lot of stressors that come up, insecurities and distressing things that can derail your desire for sex or turn you off, which can affect your erection, which can affect your libido, which can affect your mind. And if all those are affected or if one of those are affected, desire, ability to reach orgasm, things along those lines, that comes up frequently. <clears throat> so I try and work with people to engage in mindful sex. So being able to bring themselves back to their body, be able to be vulnerable, recognize what it feels like and what warmth and connection feels like. Cause you can't get that over here in, in solo sex, like with another person, there's no connective space there, which can be really wonderful too. So I try and help them experience and understand that just because there may be this over here, this did not immediately make this happen but we need to see all accounts of what could be stressful. So if there's a performance meter, I'd give education around someone coming in saying, I, I prematurely ejaculate. And I'm like, do you know that during penetrative sex, the average length of time is anywhere from three minutes to seven minutes. So many people are thinking they've got to go for 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes of penetrative sexual experience with a partner. And they think that they're ejaculating too quickly because they're, you know, three or four minutes where the diagnosis is actually under a minute over 75% of the time. And I do work with people experience that, but that education can help reduce some of that anxiety. Acceptance of body can do that. <clears throat> Being able to allow erections to come and go and find other things beyond penetrative sex so that it's not all based off of penile erections that you can experience a loving sexual experience with your partner with or without an erection. There's a lot of things that we do going down that road so that you can have pleasure and connection versus being focused on performance with your penis. I imagine that, that these are, again, going back to kind of the beginning of this conversation, these are probably difficult topics to discuss individually, but also as a couple. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, how, how does that part go for you in, in terms of these types of discussions? Because I imagine there's, there is a lot of, there, there's a, a high level of shame around this performance anxiety. So how do you begin to engage with a, a couple or a client just to say, it's okay that we have these discussions? Having the discussions with them, we start off with, with consent, right? Why are they coming in? What are they, what are they wanting to accomplish? And oftentimes it involves a lot of education around what I just said. And then exploring what their agreement is. Far too often, if we're talking in, well, heterosexual and uh, and gay couples as well, like LGBTQ couples, when um, and even polyamory, this comes up in polyamory too. But when you bring in other individuals, we want to start identifying what their agreements are. Far too often, 
female bodied individuals experience that their partner's drive is their responsibility. And so they have to, they have to elicit a sexual drive from their partner. And if not, then they're doing something wrong. Oftentimes in a heterosexual relationship, this means that if your partner is not erect, they're not attracted to you, you didn't do something right. And so they personalize and then they withdraw or they get defensive. Male partners are taught that they've got to be this prowess forward. And if they're not that, say their partner wants sex more than them. Now, all of a sudden, they're on this lower end and that creates distress. Or they have to act and last as long to be able to give their partner this orgasm during penetrative sex when over 75% of women don't orgasm through penetrative sex alone, that they need clitoral stimulation. And so there's these shoulds and aspects of what should be done and how sex should be had and how often it should be done that the pressure is so immense on both parties that my work with them is to try and create uh, an agreement of what both want to experience that is pleasurable and connecting with erections, without erections, with orgasms, without orgasms, so that they can create a plethora of actions versus we cuddle on the couch, we make out, make out turns to fondling and touching, that turns into penetrative sex. And if we are trying to go through that, that becomes quite a stressful um, obstacle course versus a loving, connective space to engage. So if they can create their own experiences of what they want and that they can roll with any of the obstacles that come, I find that couples can really support each other through vulnerability versus, well, you should just be doing it, so do it better. I think yeah. the, the the thing again, just just sitting here listening to you talk, and it's pretty fascinating. There's so many areas in a relationship, isn't there, where it's all about communication, and this comes up over and over and again. And something that I think is well, I know is important is that even if you feel that you're not doing a good job of communicating or having that conversation, it's just at least attempting to have that conversation is is better than nothing. Maybe add some humor in there, stumble through it blindly, make you know, just make a whole mess of it. But at least you're communicating, and and hopefully by doing that, you can get better at, at uh, having these conversations. And I usually encourage that communication to happen outside of a sexual experience. It does hurt mm-hmm. when someone is already physically naked, vulnerable, or something hasn't happened, and then we turn over and like. Hey, you know what? It really bothers me when blah, <laughs> or I'm really nervous about this. We already have too much vulnerability having a time outside where we can say, Hey, let's talk about what would be great for us. And that can be helpful in a therapy setting. It could be helpful in a, in other regards, but we don't necessarily need to start into feedback right after a sexual experience. If it's difficult feedback, but giving positive feedback. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, going along with that communication. Um, one thing that I've loved in, I first heard about this on your own podcast, Braxton, uh, the birds and the bees podcast is you talked about trying to engage with your partner along the same lines of ordering a pizza. Yeah. Yes. Can you, can you, can you share what that, what, what, what that's about and what that communication looks like? Yes. So Al Vernacchio, um, he is a, he's a sex educator in Philadelphia and he teaches, teenagers. And one of the things that he saw was problematic was the baseball diamond um, analogy where it's like, oh, did you, you were with your girlfriend last night. Did you get first base, second base? Did you get third home? And he's like, dude, this is a problem. The girls are the field. And the whole point is to try and get farther and farther as far as you can to score. And nobody knows exactly what first, second, third, and fourth base means other than home was apparently, you know, penetrative sex, but we could go through and be like, well, what is first base, second base? He's like, this is problematic. So he identified, he's like, what if we were to view sexuality as ordering a pizza? Just as much as right now, if all three of us were to say, hey, you know what, let's uh, let's order a pizza. We're doing this interview. What would you like, Rich? So now Rich can talk about, maybe I'll do it. Rich, no, what do you I'm, like on I'm your just, pizza? I'm just concerned about how much it's going to cost me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Big cost. Big cost. I don't want to go over. How, how much do you not, how much do you, are you okay with paying a pizza? I well, I'm, you're asking the wrong guy because I literally never order pizza. So you have to ask <laughs> Cody. So this is a cool part within this is that Rich is like, maybe I don't really want pizza, but maybe I'd be okay with pizza if you two want pizza. That is a part of the conversation. All of a sudden, now we're out of the assumption that Rich actually wants pizza. Maybe we need to address 
what we're going to do for dinner tonight. Or maybe Rich's like, no, you know, it's not really on my mind all the time, but, you know, I'm okay with it, but I'd rather have cheese if we're going to do anything. But maybe he's like, whatever, I just don't even, I'll, I'll order something different. Me and Cody can engage in ordering a pizza, yeah? Yeah, let me, this is a complete tangent, but I've got to go here while we're here. Um, Rich, do you, this is not picking on you. Okay. I've been traveling a lot more the last few years yeah. and I am finding it increasingly difficult to actually find pepperoni pizza in any other country. Really? <laughs> Everywhere I go, it's usually some form of hot dog or sausage or something like pepperoni pizza does not seem to exist very well. <laughs> outside of america and i did not try it when i was in england what is your thoughts on pepperoni pizza and do you have it i well uh, i'm really lucky we have homemade pizza with pepperoni on it <laughs> but if you go to if you go to a supermarket and order a pizza that one of the options is usually meat but anything that's non-specific meat i would usually steer clear of <laughs> that's good to know Fair enough. Fair enough. I, so that has nothing to do with sexuality, but while we're talking about it, that does not exist very well outside of America. So, yeah. sorry, but Braxton, sorry, I've done the classic British thing and I've derailed you from talking about sex. So carry no, on. The beautiful, <laughs> the beautiful thing about this though is, even though we're not talking about sex per se, we just brought in all the complexities of sex. Mm -hmm. Because Rich, there was an assumption here, and there's so many assumptions about sex. I was making the assumption that Rich even likes pizza. Some individuals mm -hmm. identify as asexual. I like homemade and... pizza, but this is getting all the way. I like homemade pizza. <laughs> Boom. So bringing that in is we would then need to adjust to be able to support Rich. And Rich may adjust towards us depending on that. But I had to ask Rich, what kind of pizza do you like? He's like, I don't, I don't order pizza. Well, within that, that is the same scenario as if we're assuming everybody likes sex in a certain way or wants to experience that. People often are like, I don't, I don't engage in sex like this. I only engage in sexual experiences in this way or in this way. And having that conversation, we can set it up so that, that Rich is involved, that I'm involved. Cody, what do you, assuming you like pizza, what, what do you like on your pizza? Yeah, um, I brought up pepperoni, uh, pepperoni and jalapeno, uh, maybe some some sausage. Oh, see, I'm all over that, and I know Rich's brain just went like, "Don't say it, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it." <laughs> no sausage on pizza. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Like that. <laughs> and for me, I would say, yeah, Cody, I I love all that stuff. The only limitation I have is I do not like uncooked onions on pizza. That's the one thing that mm -hmm. I'm like, nope. Can't do it, won't do it. And we can have a conversation about how we order that. How this pertains to sex is if we can have a back and forth like we just did about pizza and we're trying to engage, if a couple is trying to engage in sexual connection, whether it's a one night stand all the way to um, a relationship has been, you know, in a marriage for 30 years. When you're identifying sexual connection, you can say like, hey, what are you up for tonight? I'm, I'm interested in an orgasm. I would love to have an orgasm. Well, how would you like to have the orgasm? Well, I'd be interested in, in penetrative sex. I'd be interested in this. What are you interested in? Well, I don't know that I'm really in the mood for pizza. I don't know that I'm really in the mood for sex tonight, but I could possibly get there. Let's talk about what would be there. Maybe I'd like a massage to help me like wind down or if I get into the bath and you take and put the kids down, I might be more open to that. Okay, well, I'm open to engaging in this. We start to adjust and you can essentially engage in the sexual experience that is pleasurable and connecting for the both of you that can change from time to time. Just because all three of us talked about a homemade sausage and jalapeno pizza with cheese does not mean that every time I get together with you three that that is the only pizza we're going to order. Because as Rich talked about, he may be like, man, every time I get together with you, I love it, but we have to make homemade pizza and that takes a long time. Can we just do something else? that we can adjust. Same thing goes with sexual experiences. You may want to have this really big BDSM experience and it takes a long time to set up. And other times it might be like, no, I just want to go through, I would just love to have an orgasm while you hold and kiss me and I can masturbate. That could be something in those worlds of that would be pleasurable and connecting for both of us. Is this what we want? 
that communication allows for the partner to show up and say, this is what I'm interested in. The person that's initiating to say, this is what I'm interested in. And for an, um, for an agreement to happen versus one person pressuring and pressuring and pressuring to hopefully score. So, okay. So I, I, I love where you're going with this and, and you've sort of answered it, but how do you, how do you address different drives for how much pizza we're going to order? Right? Uh, or how, how, what's different sexual drives. And with that, um, helping clients to get past feeling shame or embarrassed or frustrated when they are turned down for a sexual advance. Great questions. When we talk about desire discrepancy, this comes in so much in my relationships is that male partner, female partner, male, male partner, female, female partner, polyamorous couples, anywhere in between. Even if we're close, there's usually someone that's got a little bit more drive or a little bit less drive. And that could be really apparent or it could be small. But I often see a lot of people are like, I don't have much drive at all. And one person's like, I could have sex like daily or every other day. And my partner's like a once a monther. How do we address this? We move back into the agreements. How can, what are the things that are okay within our relationship that create pleasure and connection? So this is where if within the relationship and individually with it, we can access masturbation. It is a great way to help for the high drive partner, be able to experience orgasms as often as they would like to. And for the, this partner that has less drive to not feel responsible or to have to meet the high drive partner, um, and not have space for them to have and create their own desire. Because usually if we're like, well, just have sex twice a week and you should be good to go. The problem is the high drive partner often will feel and see that the lower drive partner is doing this as a, like as a to-do list and it's not as engaged. And usually the high drive partner is like, no, I want you to want me. I want you to be with me. I want you to connect with me. And so we need to foster this partner that has the lower drive, what they like to experience, but also what helps them relax into a sexual experience and also allow for the um, higher drive partner to have other options so that we don't create any type of cuddling and kissing turns into sex. Because I often see the lower drive partner then go, well, I just won't cuddle and kiss then because that'll turn you on. And then I'll have to do something I'm not very interested in. So if we can create cuddling, kissing and masturbation, or other ways to be able to express that. I work with the partnership for them to align and what allows for both of them to experience what they'd like to communicate about it, have no be okay on the table with other options so that they can initiate, be like, Hey, I'd like to, you know, engage in sex tonight. You're looking really sexy. And one partner being like, ah, I'm really not feeling anal sex. I'm not feeling vaginal sex. Um, I'm not really feeling like a blow job or a hand job. I just, I'm, I'm really tired, but um, yeah, if you'd like to hold me while I master or while you masturbate, we can do that. I would make out with you. I'd love to cuddle with you while you do this. Are you wanting an orgasm by yourself? Uh, do you want me to take some pictures or maybe we have some pictures that you can go look at, uh, for us or whatever is a part of the, the fantasy or the experience for the higher drive partner that the lower drive partner has access to as well. So they don't feel as responsible for the other person's sexual drive. And then also, helping a lower drive individual that may not think about it very much, how we can initiate um, reminders of uh, how they can get into the mood. Maybe it's a bath. Maybe it's uh, <clears throat> support that they don't have to deal with kids. That there can be some ways that we initiate what's going to be best supported for the two of them. And that's where we start to get into the unique space for each of uh, the, the, the couples um, or the relationship so that they can create their own path of, of support, it'd be hard in the podcast to say, this is exactly what you do because it's so individualized. Yeah. Sounds complicated. I, I can see why some people just go, I, I think I'm just going to go and watch TV. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and why a lot of therapists say, I don't want to do couples and sex therapy because <laughs> it's very yeah. complex. It is. It is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I only have one more question for you, um, Braxton, and then we can we can probably wrap up. Um, you've brought up this uh, idea of polyamory a couple mm -hmm. of times, and um, I'm curious how how those those conversations go in session, and um, what type of stuff do you work on with people when that topic is brought up? 
So first off, when I'm working with polyamory, it comes up frequently. People are very curious about consensual non-monogamy. Essentially that we can say, hey, let's swing or let's be polyamorous or let's open our relationship. Um, oftentimes that comes up when we experience that I have a high drive, you have a low drive. So let me go out and I will be sexual with other people. You can too, but that'll resolve it. <clears throat> and that can. The hard part is if that's the first thing that we go to, if the relationship's not in a space that's um, full of trust, understanding, connection, and we set up some really sturdy boundaries around it, it oftentimes, from anecdotally, from what I've seen, it, it hurts the relationship more than it helps. Because the main things that we have to focus on, the ones that I've seen most successful have been those that have come in and said, we're interested in opening our relationship somehow, but we want to process through and set it up so that it works for us. Then we go through sessions where they identify what happens when we feel jealousy. What is okay? What's not okay? Are we doing this together? Are we doing this separate? What are we going to do if childcare comes up? How am I going to respond and manage if you're off with somebody else and I'm watching the kids and I'm feeling slighted? Working through all of the things that could possibly show up when it comes to jealousy, frustration, um, feeling left out, um, feeling not enough. I see those couples work into a really great space because they also have a way to be able to say, hey, I need to stop this because I don't feel very comfortable. Let's regroup um, versus the couples that have come in where they've already opened the relationship. Usually they're coming in because there's a betrayal that they feel. So they're like, well, I said you could go out with this person, but I didn't think you're going to experience emotion with them. Like, I thought this is just a physical thing, but now you're saying that you feel emotionally attracted to them. And now I'm like, oh, you're going to leave me. And that, that was crossing a line that they didn't know that they needed to address. Or they said, yeah. I said soft swinging, which meant that you could touch and maybe have oral sex, but you had penetrative sex with this person. You cheated on me. And now we're dealing with betrayal trauma that comes in. So oftentimes, if we can have the patience and work on the relationship so that this relationship feels sturdy and firm within that, and both parties want to open up, then that can be a really helpful thing. The hard part is if one person wants to and the other one's like, eh, maybe <clears throat> we need to have a very resounding, yes, I want to do this. If not, it's not a very safe thing to open up in those regards just because of the intensity of betrayal feelings, betrayal trauma that can come up. Um, but I do see couples that, uh, that they make it work um, that can be really helpful. I do tell those couples that if it's just to try and address the desire differences, that there's a lot of other things we can do to try and address desire differences or so that we can maintain it together <clears throat> if they're not interested in opening that. But uh, that involves that personal work within in that. A, in a heterosexual relationship, would, you, would it generally be the man that wanted to open the relationship up? Usually you're seeing on, on a re, uh, research-based side, you're typically seeing that the high drive partner is male around 75% of the time in a heterosexual relationship. So that does leave that 25% of the time we've got women that are in a higher drive that want to open the relationship so they can experience more. <clears throat> but you would usually see that coming in um, in regards to that. Plus, we've got societal norms of women aren't supposed to be promiscuous, but men can. There's a lot to play into it, but... Per the research, that's what you're typically seeing is roughly around 75% of men are going to be in this higher drive category. Braxton, thanks for thanks for jumping into all of that. Um, if if you're okay with it, I'll probably jump into our wrap-up questions here. Yeah, that and, sounds great um, to me. They're unrelated to sexual health uh, and, and completely completely random. Not to do with pizza, are they? <laughs> <laughs> they are not pizza related no. um and and then we'll uh, and then we'll finish up so i'm um, just fairly rapid fire but usually either rich and i uh in interrupt that and go off on a tangent so we'll see how rapid fire they are <laughs> uh, just on a personal level um can you name one accomplishment that that uh, that you is your one of your favorites that you've had across your life and then also maybe one current challenge that you might be facing yeah. <clears throat> so one that uh, one of my favorite ones that's led me down to the most random things is actually up here. You can't really see, but this is James Corden. Um, he's okay. doing late night show. Um, he's also, yeah. yeah, you know him. I was like, he's, yeah. he's, he's from yeah. where you're at. Yeah. So James Corden, uh, this is me chugging a bottle of mustard 
um, <laughs> on for, his for show. Those, for, the, for those listening, Braxton is pointing to a painting in the background. Yep, pointing to a, yep, a, a picture of me and, and the Late Late Show with James Corden. So one of my accomplishments is I, in 2018, I broke the, the world record for chugging mustard the fastest in 30 seconds. <laughs> That's great. So for, for a whole year, I, I held the record. Uh, since then, there's a, a guy in Germany that, that broke the record. I broke his and then he broke mine. Um, but I broke the world <laughs> record. And then they brought me on to James Corden's Late Late Show. Um, I was on the Snapchat for Guinness World Records, and is that it just on, kind of um, can we see that on YouTube? It used to be on YouTube. So they took it down because uh, one of the people I was on the show with was associated with Ping the golf, and there was an issue within the video because they wouldn't let them sponsor or okay. wouldn't pay them. So they took it down. But um, you can see me. You can see my world record chug. Um, oh yeah, if we'll you type in that, we'll put that in the show notes. You'll have to yeah. send us a link. That'd be funny. <laughs> So you can see me chugging for the world record when I broke it. And then, um, so that was, that was one big one. I was encouraging parents to mustard the courage to talk to their kids about sex. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, cool. so that was a big accomplishment for me. And that took me to all these random places, which is fun. And uh, I'd say a, a big challenge I'm running into right now has been um, probably just letting things, letting life be the way that it is instead of trying to control it. I'd say that I, I am one that, uh, I, as you said at the beginning of the podcast in our first episode was like, wow, Braxton was just going and going and going. And he got all these different accomplishments super early from, from, uh, college. And I think that as beyond before that, I would look at that and be like, Oh, look at me. I'm very accomplished and I've done super well. And I got these things so fast and I'm so young and I'm realizing that uh, that's actually, while it's it served me well, it's actually been a space of anxious distress, trying to accomplish and get to the next level while not feeling satisfied with what I've accomplished. And so mm -hmm. one of the big challenges this last year, and that's been, I've made a lot of progress in, has been slow down. It's okay. You don't have to get to that next thing. These are not emergencies. And let's look back and see the accomplishments you've had. Keep working towards the things that you're doing and slow it down. You, you do not have to accomplish everything. And that's been really helpful on a stress level for me. Yeah. I love that. All right. Number two is, do you focus on self-care? And if you do, what is one of your favorite activities? Yeah, I do focus on self-care. I love karaoke. Karaoke is one of my favorites. Um, the thing I've been doing consistently though, has been, um, going to the gym, recognizing that weightlifting is just as healthy for me as running. I thought running was better and I hate running, but I love lifting weights. And the one that I do on Sundays, so I'll go in a couple hours from here as I practice jujitsu, um, and learning that process of rolling in jujitsu. That's a, a self-care thing for me. That's great. Uh, you may have answered this third one already, um, but it's uh, what is something you have learned about yourself recently? Yeah, I would say that uh, that learning and diving into the um, the yin yang Tao Te Ching um, has been helpful for me. For the the Tao Te Ching is all about being able to like allow and keep allowing, and that's been helpful for me to continue improving that for myself. That's kind of like the mindful, uh, well, all these things are related, but the mindfulness thing, isn't it? Um, Absolutely. Accepting what's in front of you, uh, not mm -hmm. necessarily trying to change it. It's just, uh, it is, and you're going to deal with it. Yep. <laughs> Accepting the extremes and then being like, all right, just flow, just be within it. Don't try and force things to happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I like that. Yeah. All right. Uh, what is your favorite mental health resource that you would like to share? Oh. It'd be a podcast, uh, a person, a book, an app. I really like, um, I guess it depends on what it is. Obviously, I like my Birds and Beasts podcast. podcast. Um, but I'd say that uh, overall, um, because of sexual health, currently, I would say Come As You Are, which is um, a book by Emily Nagoski. Um, it is based strictly on research. And she breaks it down into ways that we can definitely understand when it comes to feeling normal, identifying sexual desires, and then also figuring out like where you're at and what, 
what your brakes and your your gas pedal is when it comes to wanting sexual desire and it helps really recognize that we're all normal mm-hmm. and we're human and so that i like that that dispels the myth of like you should be a certain place you should have sex this often you should want this or you shouldn't want that it just it really dispels that i think that that's my number one book that i think everybody should read I haven't read that, but we'll definitely make uh, add it into our show notes as, as well so that everybody can have an access to, to what it is and see what it is. Uh, and the last one and most random question is, uh, what is your spirit animal and why? My spirit animal shifts between elk and um, wolf. Um, and not like a crazy mean wolf. It's just like this docile, just the ones where they're just like kind of walking around just being tame. <clears throat> I'd say that that one has just shown up in my life a lot of – it can come across as aggressive, but uh, um, distressing with, or not distressing, but you can seem to be aggressive, but like it's more assertive. And then elk, I just, man, I love the way the elk look. They're the ghosts of the forest. They're hard to find. When you see them, they're just majestic. And I, for whatever reason, they just stand out to me. So a, a docile wolf and an elk. Yep. yep. <laughs> That's so cool. Awesome. Great questions. Um, Braxton, anything else that you want to make sure that you share and where can people find you and, and more of the work that you're doing and, and more education? Yeah, you can find me at uh, Birds and Bees Podcast on Instagram, um, Braxton Dutson on Facebook. Uh, you can go to birdsandbeespodcast.com. Um, and then if you're local here in Utah, uh, The Healing Group, um, you can check me out in all those areas. I'd love to, or if you want to email me, you can email me at uh, braxtontdutson at gmail.com. Um, love to help answer any of those questions. That's great. Rich, anything else from you? just want to say thanks. It's, uh, yeah, you just made the conversation easy. And, you know, as a, a British guy having the podcast, knowing that we we're going to be talking about sex, it was a bit, a bit like, how's this going to go? <laughs> getting a bit hot under the collar and uh it's been absolutely fine you you just made it really easy and uh so yeah i just want to say thank you yeah very welcome thanks for having me on you too i really appreciate it take care